This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 18 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. How you doing, Charlie? Andrew, I just burned my casino to the ground. Oh, no. I hope you got all the money. I did. I'm, I'm hoping to uh, make a run to Venezuela with my, with my wife. You know, when I think freedom, I think Venezuela. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be talking with you today, Charlie, about True Detective. Uh, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently today, folks. Uh, we don't have any major iTunes reviews or feedback to go over today. We got a little bit, but due to some stuff going on in my life, <laughs> uh, we're, we're kind of in a hurry today. So we're going to save a lot of that till next week. I do have kind of a cool announcement, Charlie. Uh, we now have over a hundred iTunes ratings from people. Wow. And we are averaging four out of five stars. So thank you to all of our supporters. Yes. Thank you so much. I cannot believe we have over a hundred reviews, Andrew. Well, not reviews. We have ratings. We're at, ratings. We're at like 80 something reviews, I think. So Keep sending in those reviews, people. Maybe we'll hit 100 reviews. But, yeah, I'm really happy that over 100 people have taken time to, to rate the show. And it means a lot that we, that we just have all the support. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, as always, people can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Also, be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you leave us a positive iTunes review, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. But let's dive right into this week's episode because a lot of stuff happened this week. So much happened. Uh, today we're going to be discussing... Season 2, Episode 7 of True Detective. The episode is titled Black Maps and Motel Rooms, and it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Daniel Atias. As a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. If you have not seen the episode, you should go watch it, then come back and listen, because we will be getting into a lot of detail about what happened. But before we dive into things, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this week? After the events of last week, our three heroes start to put all the pieces of the conspiracy together. Annie is a fugitive and helps Athena and her father get out of town. Davis winds up dead, and there is an APB out on Ray for her murder. Paul is blackmailed using pictures of him and Miguel, and discovers that Miguel and his Black Mountain colleagues are working for Catalyst. Frank confronts and kills Blake after learning that Osip and Catalyst conspired to take everything from him, including his clubs. At the end of the episode, Annie and Ray have sex, Frank burns down his casino, and Paul is shot in the back by Burris. All right. A lot of stuff happened this week, Charlie. Quite a bit. So let me just ask you, Charlie, you of the two of us, I think you've been the most pessimistic about this season <laughs> of True Detective. There's been a lot of stuff I haven't liked, but I've kind of just been hoping that it would improve and waiting to see how it would all turn out at the end and if that would change my opinion of certain things. But I'm curious, Charlie, what did you think of this episode when finally the puzzle pieces are starting to be put together? 
I liked this episode more than I've liked a lot of other episodes this season, uh, mainly because everything is finally seeming to cohere into something that I can follow and understand. At the same time, it was so, so, so confusing, Andrew. And, like, I had to pause this episode multiple times. Every time they mentioned a character's name, I was like, who? And then had to look him up again. You know, I I can't say I'm invested in a lot of what's going on, but I'm at least interested, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Like, at least I'm actually interested in what Frank is doing. And I actually thought Vince Vaughn was pretty good this episode and thought that there were actually stakes and he seems to have uh, finally built up to a certain breaking point, which I've been waiting for for a long time. Stuff with Annie, I thought was really interesting in terms of her coping with the, you know, post-traumatic stress of like her whole incident at the orgy. Uh, And, you know, one of our major characters has now been killed off. And while I have mixed feelings about it, at least the show had the guts to actually pull that. And, you know, including in comparison to last season where Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson suffered uh, what seemed like fatal wounds and ended up fine. So I'm still not like 100% on board, but at least I found this to be a step in the right direction. I don't know, Charlie. It's who knows. Maybe we'll open up our finale next week with uh, Paul sitting in limbo listening to a Conway Twitty impersonator. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. (laughs) That is a very good point. (laughs) Um, I, I also liked this episode and I'm a little bit conflicted, Charlie. Mm-hmm. strangely enough, about the fact that I liked it. I'm trying to figure out how much of what I liked about it is actually because it's a good episode and how much of it is just because, well, of course, it's the end. Things have to start to come together. We have to start to get some momentum. Yes, I actually feel the exact same way. Right, and so I'm a little bit conflicted. I'm thinking, okay, I liked this. On the other hand, Maybe I would have always liked it, no matter what, as long as, because there, there would, by its nature, have to be some sort of momentum and some sort of resolution that we're starting mm-hmm. to get. I don't know. But, um, but let's, let's dive right into things here. Let's, you mentioned, Charlie, that you were a little bit confused. So, and I also was confused. There's a scene when Annie, Ray, and Paul are sitting around, going over the documents, going over what they know, and it's this massive exposition dump mm-hmm. about Dixon and Holloway and Burris and the robbery and how everything played out. And I got to be honest, Charlie, I watched that scene three times <laughs> and I'm still not sure I have everything. So let's- I'm not sure either. I only watched it twice. And at the one point I was just like, I'm just going to have to keep pushing forward. I don't know what they're talking about. Hopefully it'll play out. But yeah, those three names were consistently thrown across each character like multiple times. And I... The- the thing about this episode that was so confusing to me and I think is what I my big complaint about this season is each character is tangentially introduced and is only seen one or two times to the point where the show expects us to keep up with all these people even though we don't know that much about them and then I have to keep Googling who they are. These people have only been in one or two scenes, basically, and I feel like Nick Pizzolatto expects us to keep up with all of them, and I don't mind being challenged to keep up with a bunch of character names. I like Fillmore. It's just that they're not so much characters so much as they are pawns in a big chess game for 
his screenplay not so much developed people that I can remember or are really fleshed out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And and I was thinking about it, Charlie, and I realized that I think that would work in other mediums. And I think it might even work better after the fact, like if you were binge watching Yes. True Detective Season 2. Like, it, it it's not unusual for detective stories, you know, for the culprit to turn out to be someone that you only encounter briefly beforehand, uh, whether it's in a crime novel or in an episode of Law and Order or Scooby-Doo or, <laughs> you know, it's it's not unusual for the people you you meet once or twice to then turn out to be the big bad villain at the end. And I think the problem is that watching this season and watching this type of story play out over two months, it's that you forget. Mm-hmm. You forget who is who. You forget who you saw and how every person relates to everyone else and what their job is. I think it's the kind of thing that that looks better in retrospect or you can understand why Nick Pizzolatto wrote it that way. But it's frustrating to watch play out. I completely agree because, I mean, we also are film critics and we also watch a lot of other TV. You know, I'm watching Hannibal and Rectify and Rick and Morty right now so and seeing a bunch of films. So you're right. Over the course of eight weeks, when we are watching a ton of other stuff as well, it becomes difficult to stick everything to memory, especially in a big convoluted web of, you know, corruption here. And I agree. I think that people who end up binge-watching this season may have a much easier time following it. At the same time, I do feel like some of these people could have been a little more fleshed out. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's let's lay down what we know. Mm-hmm. So, in 1992, during the L.A. riots, Burris, Dixon, and now Chief Holloway... They committed the the robbery and stole the diamonds and executed those two people, which orphaned those two kids. Casper collaborated with them, and I wasn't quite sure if he helped them with the robbery or if he just acted as, like, the accountant to help them when they, when they had the diamonds, to help them transfer the money. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. But basically, they all used those diamonds to pay Chisani to kind of buy into the Vinci power structure and land cushy jobs. And the only exception to that was Dixon. And our heroes were trying to figure out, like, did he suspect that Casper had kept some of the diamonds and was that's why he was checking in on it? Uh, was he trying to use the diamonds as leverage? Was he kind of feeling like, hey, I never got my due, I never got what's coming for me? You know, I'm still just a regular old cop. But for whatever reason, he was checking into the diamonds. And and that's honestly where it gets fuzziest for me is what what happened to the diamonds after they used some of it to buy into the power structure and to pay off Chisani. Uh, Do we know? I mean, is that going to be – do you think that they're waiting to reveal that in the finale? I don't know. And honestly, I'm not sure I care. I don't either. I think the main thing we're supposed to take away is that Burris Dixon, Holloway, and Casper 
all were connected to this robbery and all stole the diamonds and used that to become more powerful in Vinci. And also, Burris arrested Leto Amaria in 2006, but released him after no interrogation. Which makes me think that Burris, he just had leverage on Amarilla, knew that he could count on him, knew that he could manipulate him. And our detectives even suggested in this episode that maybe Amarilla ended up being screwed over. Maybe Amarilla kind of knew what was going on, but thought he was going to get a better end of the deal. And also, they say that the, the diamonds that were left, the diamonds that Casper kept, they were the last piece of evidence of that double murder from 1992 and they were kind of suggesting that maybe Dixon had purposefully been killed for mm-hmm. that reason and I don't know I'm not sure I yeah. buy that that it gets really fuzzy when you're talking about the diamonds and Dixon's involvement just because I kind of feel like his death was definitely accidental <laughs> Yeah, that's what I felt, too. That's what I felt, too. But I do like Todd Vanderwerf's theory that Laura, who was one of the orphans from the L.A. Riot Diamond Heist, might be the person who uh, who killed Casper for revenge against her parents' murder when Casper was involved in killing her parents to get the diamonds. And then, as a result, and this would feed into your theory about how this whole season is about corruption— Casper's murder really didn't have anything to do with everything else going on. It was just what started this big snowball effect of uh, everyone basically going out for each other. Right. And I do like that theory, Charlie. I don't know if I just want to say Laura is involved, though, because we are told, looking at this photograph, that the two kids in the photo are Laura and Leonard. Mm -hmm. Leonard was the set photographer that we met in episode two or three. He, I think, is probably collaborating with her somehow. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one of them is the Birdman. I, I, I think they're both involved. It would not surprise me if Leonard and Laura killed Casper at his little secret bungalow or whatever, mm-hmm. and then... Leonard drove the body out while Laura waited to see if Holloway or Burris or any of the other people were going to come along. And Ray stumbled in, and that's how Ray ended up getting shot. But why would they use... But then why would Laura, if she is the person in the bird mask, use, like, those bullets? That is a good point. Like, why would she use bullets that she knew wouldn't kill someone if she was expecting those people who I assume she would want killed? Like, it's not like she just saw Ray and was like, oh, I'll just put in fake bullets now. Like, I don't think that that's what happened. But. Well, actually, I don't know. I was thinking maybe, like Casper, they wanted to kind of torture. Oh, yeah, blow off the genitals put out the eyes with acid. Right, so maybe it's just they're going to incapacitate them with these riot bullets. The question is, where did they get the riot bullets? And I I don't know, maybe Laura, because she was Casper's secretary, could have pulled some strings with the police department and gotten some. I don't know. But do you think Laura would also find out that, because it's pretty obvious that Colin Farrell or Ray is a cop, so it's not like Laura would just shoot him and be like, who the fuck is this? This is my prediction, and I could be totally off base here. 
I think that they were waiting for either Burris, Dixon, or Holloway to come check it out and see what was going on with Casper. And they didn't realize who who Ray was. So Ray gets shot, and then they realize, oh, this isn't who we're looking for. I guess we're not going to tie him up and torture him. But why would they just leave him there? What what are they going to do? What else? (laughs) They kind of be like, oh, oh, shoot, I just shot this cop. I I don't don't know if he's going to live or not. I think I need to get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah, I think that uh, Laura and Leonard were out for revenge. And I think that them killing Casper was unexpected. And that it just kind of was the first card in this house of cards to to fall and send the whole thing tumbling down because keep in mind casper was also being blackmailed by tasha Mm -hmm. that's something else we learned this episode she was taking pictures and i was right last week charlie i predicted that it was going to be her blood in the cabin Mm -hmm. and it looks like that was the case uh tony chasani and his guys found out that she was taking pictures and killed her do you also want to go to the fact that uh, Mayor Chisani is the only person who doesn't seem involved with everything, and it's actually his son who's actually trying to uh, take his spot? Well, it doesn't surprise me, just because the mayor is not sober enough to do any of this. <laughs> he is always drunk. Always <laughs> yeah i mean i most of the time i watch this show insanely sober so if i can't keep up with this stuff i'm pretty sure the mayor wouldn't be able to either so so it seems like that these are the basic pieces of the puzzle and they're finally starting to come together and yeah there are a few more questions that need to be answered like who is the bird man or the bird woman but i think most of it is pretty clear yeah, well, as clear as it can be for now, uh, there are a lot of, I, I know that next week's finale is 90 minutes, there's a lot they're going to have to do in that 90 minutes to wrap everything up. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're going to leave some stuff unanswered, in all honesty, and I'm not trying to be cynical, it's just I feel like Nick Pizzolatto has bitten off so much I'm, I'm sure there are a few things he might have forgotten about. Well, let's talk about some of the other stuff going on in this episode. What did you think of everything with Frank? I thought some of his lines of dialogue, particularly when he's playing poker by himself, were some big-time pizzawatos. <laughs> like, big, big-time pizzawatos, Andrew. I only have one pizzawato written down this week, and it wasn't from Frank. So what do you have, Charlie? Okay, so Jordan comes in. And Frank says, there'll be some new people running the clubs from now on. Jordan says, what people? Frank says, Mexicans, something else to solve. In the midst of being gangbanged by forces unseen, I figure I'd drill myself a new orifice and go fuck myself for a change. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I actually really liked that. I was like, okay. What does that mean, Andrew? <laughs> what does that mean? It means Frank feels like he's just being fucked over from all sides and he's like well i might as well do it to myself by getting involved with the mexicans 
my god! And then to add to add on to that, Jordan says right after that, we could just walk away from the table. Frank says that's fifteen years of my life. You see me managing an Applebee's, and Jordan says I worked there once. They give you a shift meal. And then there's like, a, Frank gives off a slight chuckle, and then they start talking about something else, and I'm like, what? Do you think Applebee's paid for that plug? <laughs> Everyone who worked at an Applebee's last night was like high-fiving over that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, Charlie. Frank confronts Blake in this episode, and we find out that Stan knew, found out what was going on, and was trying to blackmail Blake. Mm-hmm. So apparently Stan wasn't such a great guy either. For all that buildup, yeah. The main thing I took away from that conversation, Charlie, is that pretty much Frank has nobody left except Nails. Like, everybody has turned on Frank. And they were all working behind his back. They all were like, oh, the Russians are moving in. We need to get with the Russians because they're about to be the next the next big game in town. And I thought that was interesting, that things were even worse for Frank within his own organization than he realized. I agree. Um, What did you think of the scene where he beat and eventually killed Blake? Because that slow motion shot of uh, him shoving the wine glass into his face was a little over the top, and I like how the guy from the Daily Beast uh, like uh, referred to it as a Zack Snyder shot. Like, it looked like something out of, like, 300 or Watchmen, where it was in slow motion, just and the, the shards of glass are just, like, flailing into the frame. I don't know. I mean, I thought the scene got better after that, but I did think the slow motion cut was a little unintentionally funny. I was mixed on it. I was like, oh, that's awkward. But yeah. then I was also like, I guess it's kind of cool. So it's, it's a big moment for Frank. So mm-hmm. why not slow it down? I, I think overall I, I was more okay with it than not. Yeah. But here's the question, Charlie. Because we now know that everybody's against Frank, do you think Jordan was in on it? I think that's definitely a possibility because she didn't have much of a reaction when she walked in and saw Blake bleeding to death on the floor. In fact, I thought that was a little unintentionally funny, too. It was almost like she just went, okay, I guess we'll have to deal with it. Like, it was just such a non-reaction. I'm going to say no. No? I'm going to be upset, actually, if Jordan is involved. Really? I was going to say the opposite because... It would at least give her something to do and develop her more as a character other than nagging or I want a baby or something. Because if she is involved, at least there's she has a little more substance there. You know what I mean? Right, but it's in total contradiction to what to how she's be, been presented thus far. And that is true. It just feels really out of character to me. Like, yeah. why would she be constantly telling Frank, it's okay, let's move, let's get out of here, you're going to be fine, you need to go legit, I think you're right, Blake is probably up to something. Like, why would she be so supportive of him if she was actually trying to work against him? I might be willing to buy might be willing to buy, that she knew about everything with OSIP 
and she knew that the Russians were moving in, and so she's been trying to encourage Frank to just let that go and get out while he still can. Mm-hmm. I might be able to buy that. I don't think I can buy that she would actually be colluding against him and that she would be actively trying to bring him down just because that does not jive with everything else that she's done. Yeah, unless she somehow was conniving to get artificially inseminated or have Frank get her pregnant and then be like, okay, I have a baby, and then off you and then take your money and then run away. I can't help but think about that shot in the first episode, though, where I originally thought she was going to be some sort of puppet master where Frank is presenting the whole slideshow on the railroad. And there was that look in her eye where I was like, is she up to something? She doesn't look entirely like comfortable or she looks like there's something going on there. That is a good point, though, about why would she, what point would there be, yeah, you're right, it doesn't add up, it doesn't add up. At the same time, don't you think it would be at least a little more interesting to see Kelly Riley be villainous in some way or have something to do? Well, here's what I think could be interesting about it, if this is just how Jordan is, if we're we're supposed to take Jordan at face value. And this kind of segues a little bit into... Ray and Annie. Assuming Paul is dead, now we've got these two couples. We've got Frank and Jordan, and we've got Ray and Annie, and they are fighting to stay alive, and the House of Cards is tumbling down. The question is, can they escape, essentially? They've solved the mystery to a large extent, but can they make it out of this web of corruption with their lives and potentially even bring down this ring of corruption? You know, there's this whole question of, well, can Ray and Annie go to the feds? What are their, what are their options? But aside from actually, you know, bringing these wrongdoers to justice, can they survive? And I, I kind of find it interesting that the finale has now been set up to focus on two couples. That is true. I think that Frank and Ray are probably going to die. And I think that they're building it up to Annie. I think they're building Annie up to be the person who brings everything down. Or at least brings as much down as she can and escape with her life. Possibly. I do think that it's possible Ray will die just based on what his father told him in limbo about running out of the woods saying, you know, they kill you, son, they kill you. Also, I thought it was interesting that Annie, at the beginning of this episode, she's still in kind of a daze, and she mentions running out of the woods, uh, and and she's remembering back to when she was a kid and, and was trapped with that pervert for four days. Four days. Yeah, I wanted to mention that. That's a long time to be locked up with that pervert. Yeah. I mean, clearly it was so traumatic she doesn't remember any of it. If I had to predict, someone is going to run out of the woods and die. Would be my (laughs) prediction. Literally? Yes. I think they've been kind of foreshadowing that. Someone's going (laughs) to, at some point, someone's going to run out of the woods from where they're hiding and probably die. And uh, I think Frank's going to die. Yeah. I can see no other way out of that, especially after what he, you know, the self-destructive behavior he had in this episode. I feel like there's no way he can make it out of this alive. Unless, of course, 
he does run away to Venezuela because, and they have some sort of like body heat type ending where he's on a beach with like a Corona or something, but I don't know. I, like, I think that Ray and Annie might make it out. Maybe, maybe. I don't, you know, maybe not Ray, but I, if, if either couple's going to survive fully, I think it's going to be Ray and Annie. I think Frank in all likelihood will die, but it'll turn out Jordan is pregnant. So it's okay. He's going to live on. Of the remaining players in this, in the, in the finale, I feel like Frank is most likely to die then Ray, then Annie. I, I'd be actually pretty surprised if they kill Rachel McAdams off based on the fact that a lot of the season seems to be her coming to terms with her internal and emotional crises that are finally coming into fruition here. I do think though that what's the name of her former partner that she slept with? Oh, I was trying to remember that too. I think it's like Elisa or something. I, I can't quite remember. I think her father and her sister are dead because of him. I think. Oh she no, I don't think so. I you don't think so? No, I totally buy that he is still kind of in love with her and wants to help her out. I that works for me. I guess it's at the point though where this episode reveals. Oh, it's all of them. They're all involved because they're building uh, Athena up to be like the most potential victim that could be crucial to. Annie's arc in terms of really solving this thing. I don't know. I see. Well, this this thing, Charlie. They've pretty much solved it. They've yeah. pretty much solved it. The question is, can they do anything with the fact that they've solved it? Who do they Who do they turn to when the mm-hmm. institution is so corrupt? I think that Frank and Ray are going to go try to infiltrate the meeting between Osip and McClandis and get that twelve million dollars. I think. Frank, because he wants the money, because he has that that Greek tragic flaw of hubris and and pride and not getting out when he really should, I think Frank is probably going to die, but maybe Ray will survive. I don't know. Speaking of Ray and Annie, how do you feel about the fact that they're a couple now? Because I'm I'm actually totally on board with it. Well, are they a couple or did they just sleep together? I'm going to go ahead and say they're a couple, or at least I want them to be a couple, because I actually think this episode did a really good job of showing how they're both broken. They both have these traumatic events in their past that have haunted them. They've both killed people and have mixed feelings about killing people. And I just think that they have more in common than previously thought. So I kind of want them to to stick it out. Here's the thing. I think that out of all of the actors in this season, I think that Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell have the best chemistry when they're in scenes with one another. And I like the dialogue that that Ray and Annie have with one another. For whatever reason, I just could not get on board with them sleeping together. I, I, I don't know. It just felt weird to me. See, I, it totally worked for me. I'm like, okay, they, they're both broken. They both have these horrible events in their past. They're both willing to be somewhat open with each other about that, though not fully. And, of course, they're going to sleep together. The world is closing in on them. They're both fugitives. They could die within the next 24 hours. 
Of course yeah. they're going to have sex one last time. What did you think about the way they filmed it, though? Because I expected, like, Rachel McAdams to be ferocious and, like, really dominate him. And it was filmed in, like, a really weird, like, a very non-erotic kind of way. I get it. They're broken characters. It's not like they're going to have the most hot, sizzling sex scene or anything like that. But I don't know. It was it was the saddest sex scene I've seen all year. <laughs> like, it was just so sad. Because I'm not going to lie, at the beginning of the episode, and this actually made sense a little bit, is that Annie says, okay, let's fuck. This solves all my problems. But at least she's, you know, coming off of Molly, which makes sense. And I'm not going to lie, when they when Colin Farrell brushed her aside, I was like, oh, thank God. And then when they came back, I was like, no, like, it just feels weird and awkward. It feels a bit contrived to me, Andrew. I don't know. I totally buy them as partners. I buy them at, at their connection as friends. It See, it worked for me because I feel like Ray, the whole season, has been talking about how he doesn't have anybody. And he's he's a total loner. Annie mm-hmm. apparently wants to be sexual, but is it's difficult for her based on her past. And so it, it made sense to me that over the course of the season, these two might be able to find somebody in each other. The only thing I'm still not clear on is, does Annie have some weird sexual kink? Because she didn't really seem to, to ask Colin Farrell to do anything out of the ordinary like she had supposedly asked Stephen that got him so upset when we first were introduced to Annie. That was my point about why didn't she just, like, pounce on him? Yeah, like, I, I, I was I don't expecting know. that. <laughs> Here's my wild out there theory, Charlie. Here's my wild out there theory. My theory from last week that the kids were going to turn out to be Emily and Miguel and Paul had slept with both of them. It was going to be really soap opera-ish. That was not true, alas. But, because, again, I keep coming back to that interview where Pizzolatto said he was inspired by Oedipus Rex, are Ray and Annie going to turn out to be siblings? (laughs) Oh, my God. But that, you're right, based on Oedipus Rex, that is a possibility. Oh, man, Andrew. So it's going to be, like, incest? Like, yes. <laughs> yes, again, that was the only thing with Oedipus Rex, is, is incest. He was accidentally sleeping with his mother and didn't know it. I'm wondering, like, is it going to turn out that they're actually siblings and they discover this? And that's the final piece of the puzzle. That's the big twist in the finale is, oh, no, I fucked my sister. Oh, no, I fucked my brother. Like, yeah. That would be insane in a way that uh, if that does turn out to be what happens, I would actually love that because it's just so insane. And it would also relate back to (laughs) my favorite line of the episode, apart from uh, Frank's early on, where uh, Annie is is basically talking to uh, Vera and uh, tells Vera... Maybe you were put on this earth for something other than fucking, and Vera just sneers at her and goes, everything is fucking. That was my pizzawatto for this. Yeah, that was your pizzawatto. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, here's my other crazy theory. What if, may- maybe Ray and Annie are not related, but what if Ray's father is the one who molested her? Ooh, that would be fucked up. He turns out to be 
the bearded man who visited the Panticaeum compound all those years ago with the other police officers. That would be really twisted. I'm not sure what that would add up to. Would that be their breakup, like, potential breakup setup? Like, oh no, your father molested me, I can't trust you, type of thing? I don't know. Maybe. For a second, I thought you were going to say, just to make it even more twisted, what if Frank and Jordan are brother and sister? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, everyone is incestual and, like, everyone is, like, it's a Cersei and Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones type of thing. Or <laughs> they're all brother. Like, I don't know. No, but, but I am curious to see, like, is this Oedipus Rex comparison going to come in any other way? I mean, other than the fact that, you know, Annie is short for Antigone... Is this mm-hmm. going to be part of the plot in any way? And I'm, I don't know. I think maybe, maybe that sex scene was played up in this episode and is a big, big plot point because it's going to turn out to be more twisted than we think. But would that be like relate? <laughs> that just kind of feels like if that is what happens, that feels like it would just be like Nick Pizzolatto going, oh shit, guys, incest. Like, whoa, we couldn't you thought we couldn't get any crazier. They're fucking and they're related. Like what what thematic depth would that have if it was just oh no guys? <laughs> like I, we're everybody is corrupt and we're all part of the web of corruption and we're all part of the lies and we're all connected by it, whether we realize it or not. <laughs> Everything is incest, Andrew. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find it to be pretty twisted that Ray and Annie were fucking as Miguel betrayed uh, Paul, and then Paul was getting shot dead. So it was like the gay lovers are tragically, you know, killed off. And then, well, I guess there weren't really lovers. Miguel was playing Paul the whole time. But I was thinking like, oh, that's a little fucked up that the gay character is getting killed off while his two heterosexual partners are now fucking. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, two things. First of all, it didn't bother me because sex and death are often linked in in fiction. Oh, it didn't bother me. I just was thinking, oh, that's a little messed up. That's all. <laughs> I mean, it's really not uncommon in TV or movies or books for sex and death to go hand in hand. I mean, the the French term for orgasm is le, le petit mort, which means a little death. So it, it's not an unusual thing. Um, I do want to correct something you said, though. Miguel was not working against Paul. He wasn't? And that kind of bothered me a little bit. No, that was not intended. Oh, okay. I misinterpreted it. Holloway says that Dixon was following Paul and Miguel and took pictures of them, and they just happened to find those pictures when they were clearing out his apartment. Okay, I thought that the reveal was that Miguel purposefully hooked up with him so they could blackmail him. No, that was not on purpose. Now, it does turn out that Miguel is and the whole Black Mountain group, they've renamed themselves and they're working for Catalyst. So, it's again, it's all connected. But Miguel getting with Paul was not part of the conspiracy. It was not part of of the... It was not intended, basically. And I, that kind of bothered me a little bit when, uh, because Holloway says something like, it was just a happy coincidence. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Really? I mean, I yeah. understand in a narrative this complex, there are going to be certain coincidences, but I don't know. That just really, <laughs> really rubbed me the wrong way. Like, come on. 
Come on. <laughs> You're that desperate to make it all tie together. I guess I guess it was just a coincidence. <laughs> he just was spying on him one day and then saw them fucking and he's like, oh shit. And then just called his friend and he's like, dude, you're not going to believe this. Miguel and Paul are fucking. Like, oh no, my God, this even, just got so easy for me. He didn't like, even call though. Again, it, it just, it was found in his apartment after he was died. And again, we don't know. Was he killed on purpose? Was it an accident? <laughs> Everything with Dixon, I feel like, is a big question mark for me. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. <laughs> so what did you think of this whole scene with Paul where he goes to uh, confront Miguel and see who's blackmailing him, and they have this whole fight where Paul takes out four soldiers, essentially, and knocks out Holloway. At least I think he knocked him out. I don't think he killed him. Yeah. I don't think he killed him either. Um, I thought it was fine. Uh, I did think that he was going to get killed off after he put his mom and Emily into the hotel room and they start watching the Natalie Wood film, which I haven't seen, uh, Splendor in the Grass. And his mom says, oh, you haven't seen this to Emily? And she goes, no. And she goes, oh, it's very sad. (laughs) Like, I was kind (laughs) of like, red flag. Uh, so, and then it keeps cutting back to them watching the movie and getting teary-eyed. I guess that I find it to be interesting that Paul's sexuality technically killed him in a certain way, because if he just was fine with being gay, none of this would have happened, really. I mean, he almost sells out Ray and Annie to them, and I couldn't tell if he was acting like he didn't care about them, or if he really didn't give a shit about them and was so intent on pretending to have this heterosexual life because Emily is pregnant and he didn't want to lose all that. I guess I wanted, I guess some of our theories about Paul, I wanted fleshed out a little more because remember how we were talking about the only person in the shootout back in episode four who looked comfortable was Paul. And I thought we were going to get a little more depth on why him being in combat is the only time he can feel normal or whether or not he really does care about uh, Ray or Annie. And I feel like it's a nice twist. At least there's some stakes here that he's been offed, but I couldn't help but feel like they, Nick Pizzolatto introduced a lot of potential qualities to this character that didn't really pay off. Well, I agree to a certain extent that Paul was underdeveloped, I don't have a problem with everything involving him in combat because he was a soldier. He went through some stuff overseas. It makes sense to me that he would be cool under pressure, that he'd be fine in the shootout in episode four, and that he'd be able to keep his wits about him and take out four other guys here. It does feel a little bit heavy-handed to me. You know, you have that scene where Miguel confronts him and literally just says... If you'd just be honest about who you are, nobody'd be able to run you. Yep. And I'm like... That was very on the nose. And I was just thinking, really? Is that is that the whole point of Paul's character, just so we can get to that point? Like, oh, be who you want to be. It felt a little bit too cut and dry for me. But overall, I think this scene was well-directed. Uh, I think it was handled pretty well. I thought it was pretty crazy that... Paul ended up using Miguel as a shield. Yeah, that was fucked up. Like, what the (laughs) hell, man? (laughs) 
Have some decency. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do to survive, though. And it made sense to me even that he's going to be so confused, he's going to be so overwhelmed, so pumped up with adrenaline that he's going to bust out of the, the, the facility and not check that corner. That was a little frustrating to me, too. It made, it made sense to me, though. Like, in, when, in that kind of situation, you're going to be so relieved to just get out. You're not going to think to check the corner, even though that's normally what you would do in a combat situation. Yeah, but after all of the exceptional gunplay that he is uh, that he's performed like you think that he would have just checked that one corner because i mean the shootout in episode four was way more intense and uh busy than this one in the tunnels granted it was in daylight and you know everyone was much more visible but yeah and i guess that the fact that burris is the guy who killed him that payoff didn't I didn't feel anything for that payoff. You know what I mean? Like, Burris is, again, just another player in this web of lies and corruption. Well, in a weird way, Charlie, the fact that the plot is so complex and the fact that there are so many players involved who we haven't spent a whole lot of time with, in a weird way, it kind of makes sense that, yeah, of course, Paul's going to forget about Burris. Didn't we all forget about Burris? <laughs> did I did. Didn't everybody yep. <laughs> forget everybody, essentially? And, ha- and how many, you know, given how many people are involved and how many pieces there are to this puzzle, it makes sense to me that Paul would forget about Burris. And it worked for me overall. And I think Taylor Kitsch did a pretty good job when he's just crawling on the ground like, no, fuck, no, no. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. No, he, he did do a good job. He did do a good job. And I agree. It does make sense. I'm just saying that in terms of having a dramatic payoff, I felt nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Plot-wise, perfect sense. In terms of an emotional, like, if that if I was supposed to be shocked that Burris is the one who shot him, I just didn't care. It could have been anybody. Right. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Any comments on that last shot of Emily where she seems to get maybe that Paul has just died or maybe she doesn't and she's smiling because she's watching this movie about the, the kids? I don't know. What did you, How did you interpret that scene? Well, I have not seen uh, Splendor in the Grass. I know I should because it's a Natalie Wood film and, you know, it's influenced uh, Pedro Almodovar in many ways. And it's directed by Ilya Kazan, who did uh, On the Waterfront. But the premise of that film, according to INDB, is a fragile Kansas girl's unrequited and forbidden love for a handsome young man from the town's most powerful family drives her to heartbreak and madness. So that certainly sums up what was going on there. I feel like she was just watching the movie and crying, but I don't feel like she realized, oh, he's dead. I feel like it was just her watching the movie. And if I had seen the film, I could probably link up that scene that she was watching to something that was going on with Paul at the moment. I know this is a horrible thought, Andrew, but I was thinking how great would it have been if they, they're like, oh, that movie was sad, and then they changed the channel, and it's like, gay marriage is legalized all across America. <laughs> <laughs> we interrupt this broadcast to bring you breaking yeah. news. <laughs> the Supreme Court has legalized gay marriage. Congratulations, Paul. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, have you seen Splendor in the Grass? Did you? I, uh, I have what did not. You think? I just know that it involves a lot of themes about sexual repression, which would totally fit with this season of True Detective. So it doesn't surprise me that that was the movie that was being watched. I just wasn't quite sure how to interpret that shot of Emily. There was a part of me that was like, oh no, she feels it. She knows that Paul is dead. And then the, then she started smiling and I was like, well, wait, is she happy that he's dead or is she happy that she's going to have a kid? And does she feel good about that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and let's face it, she might be mourning him next episode, but let's face it, in the long run, she's better without Paul. That relationship would have gone to shit in a matter of seconds. Probably. You are you are probably right. A few other stray thoughts I have. Uh, I really like the scenes of Frank getting all of his money and just burning down the clubs. Yeah, I, I actually did too because I was like, okay, at least this is Vince Vaughn being able to have some fun. And, you know, it actually, he's actually doing something. And I actually bought him being menacing this episode. I thought he did a fine job. I also think that the scene where he was torturing Blake, just to go back to that real quick, actually was the most menacing, convincingly threatening performance Vince Vaughn has given all season. So Right. And I my only question was, wait, if he's burning down the casino and the clubs, isn't this going to tip off Osip? that Frank is is not somebody he can rely on. Like, I feel like this is going to make it harder for Frank to infiltrate that meeting between Osip and McClandis. But Yeah, I, I agree, too. But I don't think Frank is really thinking that far right. ahead. I think he's acting impulsively. Right, and it's also possible that Osip will just look at it and go, oh, Frank is leaving, and, you know, Frank doesn't want me to have the clubs. But he doesn't necessarily know that Frank knows about him and uh, McClanless. So, mm-hmm. and then didn't he tell the bodyguards to say there was a gas leak? So they had to publicly announce that oh, there's a gas leak for your safety, everybody out. So to try and make it look like it could have been an accident, even though even to the gangsters on the show, it so clearly isn't an accident. Right, but didn't he do that to two buildings? There, were, I feel like there were multiple buildings we saw him do that to. Oh, you're right. There were multiple buildings. So I got the impression he's going to all the clubs that he owns. <laughs> all of them coincidentally have gas leaks and then they burn down. Yes, yes. <laughs> and every one of the guards' charred bodies have bullet holes in their heads. <laughs> yeah. uh, last thing I want to I talk about, last little thing I noticed, I thought it was interesting that Annie basically admitted that she's been looking to kill her whole life. That, that I like that too. That she's been training with the knives and she's been thinking about it every day because of what she went through as a kid. And it reminded me of what Frank told Ray in the episode before when he when Frank was just like, this was in you all along. Mm-hmm. Like, this is who you are. And... I like that idea, and I think that that's just another reason that Frank and Annie kind of make a good couple, because they both had this in them. They both had this dark side to them that they've been grappling with for years and years and years, and I think that it just makes sense to me that that would draw them together. I just had a thought, though. Did she kill anyone in the raid? I'm, I think she ca- killed a few people. Do you think it had to do with just the knives thing that she was looking forward to? Because... I think it was. I think it was. She's been looking to 
kill somebody who's attacking her. Okay. One on one, her whole life. N- not not in a gun. Yeah, not in a gun battle or anything like that. Right. It know? just just uh, she looking to attack a man who has put his hands on her. Essentially. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, any other comments on this episode? Oh boy, a 90-minute finale, Andrew. That's not really a comment on this episode. Well, um, okay, question, Charlie. I was trying to figure out, like, because this has been a rocky season, there's things I like about it and things I don't like about it. What I like about this episode is the fact that the stakes have risen considerably, and mm-hmm. now it, it seems like they've put the puzzle together, but the criminals involved are now out to get everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, is there a way they could have made that happen earlier on? Like, is there a way that maybe, like, halfway through the season, they started to put the pieces together, and then the second half of the season would have been them trying to put together the rest while also figuring out, oh, shoot, these people are coming after us. Do, do, we, do we go to the feds? What do we do? Would that have raised this tension and the stakes more than I think this season has done so far? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were just a few episodes this season that were based primarily around character development and Frank and uh, Jordan talking about having a baby and Paul and his money from Afghanistan. And that didn't really seem to pay off too much either. And Paul with his mom. And I feel like if they focused on this earlier on and got the ball rolling at a much by like episode, you know, four or five or even earlier than that, I feel like it would have been much easier to follow. We wouldn't have to like keep Googling or I wouldn't at least have to keep Googling names and looking them up and creating, you know, timelines and family trees and whatever. And I feel like the plot would have been much more intriguing and we would have felt more invested in it as opposed to having to keep up with it. Right. I mean, the the dynamic of the show has now changed. You know, it's no longer who's behind everything. It's how are we going to survive and react now that we know who did it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that dynamic had changed an episode or two earlier Mm-hmm. Would that have been better overall? I, I don't know. I think so. I think there was a lot of filler that wasn't necessary in previous episodes, and they were just very leisurely paced. And I feel like they could have gotten this going a lot earlier on. Well, I think you're probably right, but uh, we should go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, last thing I want to say, Charlie, there was an interview over at Pajiba.com with the actor who plays Stan. who is a pretty well-known character actor and the way he described it when they approached him they pretty much said that he was going to be frank's right-hand man for around three episodes really (laughs) yes and then that turned out not to be the case however he also said that once they got on set they they didn't film anything with him that is not in the show. Okay, so it's not like his scenes were left on the cutting room floor. Right, right. But it, okay. at some point between the time he was brought on and the time they actually filmed, I guess they changed how they were going to structure everything with Stan. But originally he was supposed to be in three episodes. <laughs> so what did they add on, do you think, that 
cut Stan out of the picture. I have no idea. Or maybe they just, when they got down to shooting it, realized, oh, shoot, we've got too much. I think Nick Pizzolatto needed to realize that early on. Oh, shit, I have too much. If he just cut out some of this, I feel like it could have been... It could have been compelling. I just feel like, yeah, that's my main complaint with the season is there's too much going on. Thank God we finally narrowed it down a bit. And was last year's finale 90 minutes, Andrew, or was it just an hour? I think it was just an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're starting to do this, too, with season finales. I just uh, finished season three of Orange is New Black, and that was a 90-minute finale, too. Is that becoming a new thing? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. We would love to get your feedback on the show. Please write it and let us know. What did you think of episode seven of this season of True Detective? How do you think it's all going to end? What do you like about this season? What do you dislike? What are your predictions? Uh, you can call us at 336-793-2509 and leave us a voicemail to let us know. You can also email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes and Stitcher, and if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. Just go to filmgeekradio.com and click the support tab and the donate button. Uh, you can also visit any of our affiliates, including Amazon. And if you navigate to Amazon from our site, we will get a few pennies of whatever you purchase. So we really appreciate all your help. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can follow me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H-91. You can also find work that I've written for various websites, such as Movie Mezzanine on, at MovieMezzanine.com, Edge Media at EdgeOnTheNet.com, Cinematic Essential at CinematicEssential.com, and All Things Horror at AllThingsHorror.com. You can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com, and you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message to let me know you're a listener, and I will try to follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And don't forget, everything is fucking This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!